0: The USDA's June 30th acreage report offered a few surprises to a market that's feeling the anxiety in the broader economy. What does the department's report mean for the next three months in American agriculture? That's today on Field Posts. DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. The USDA's June 30th acreage report has been long anticipated as conditions since the March prospective planting report have shifted considerably. DTN's lead analyst, Todd Holtman, joins us today to put the report's findings into context as ag markets have softened considerably and that trend looks to continue despite fundamentals. Todd unpacks his expectations going into this report, as well as a bit of history around the reliability of these June numbers. He also puts USDA's estimates into the broader context as the conflict in Ukraine, high fuel prices, and uncertain weather continue to influence the market on a daily basis. We'll discuss stocks and outlooks for the major grains, total acreage numbers, and what summer weather and harvest might have in store, right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential, more than ever, to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent, trusted source of actionable insights and market information, myDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN lead analyst Todd Holtman joins us today to discuss the June 30th acreage report from USDA. Todd... I want to start with expectations going into this report. What did you think was going to be in here?
1: As usual, my expectations did not quite match USDA's (laughs) report. (laughs) But having said that, I was thinking that we had a pretty good chance, Sarah, of showing the first time since the pick year of 1983, which I'm sure you don't remember. (laughs) But it'd be the first time if we could pull off actually more soybean acres than corn here in the U.S., and that did not quite happen in this report. But I thought the arguments were good. Obviously, fertilizer has been a negative for planting corn this year. Nobody likes to pay the high fertilizer bills. We also have this astounding new renaissance in renewable diesel plants taking place with rapid expansion around the country. And that's generating excitement. And it's been no secret this year that the demand for soybean and soy products has been very strong. And then again, we had some early planting problems in the Northern Plains, and that seemed to increase the likelihood that maybe less corn acres would get planted or shifted off to something else. And so anyway, I thought we had a good shot at soybean acres, but it didn't pan out.
0: Yeah, it did not pan out. Give us a little, give us kind of the top line for corn and beans coming into this, and then maybe we'll break off wheat and talk about
1: it after. Okay, so the corn planting estimate, 89.9 million acres, very close to 90 million, which has been the center of gravity for estimates this year. USDA's WASDE report has corn at 89.5 million acres, so we really didn't change the perception of what the corn harvest might be this fall. We're staying fairly consistent on that number. For soybeans, we thought we were going to have a record high total of 90 million acres or more. The March Intention Survey said 91 million acres, but this report came in at 88.3 million acres. And if there was a surprise in Thursday's report, that was it, that we had lower than expected soybean acres. Now, I have to pause to mention there's a note at the top of USDA's report, and it said that at the time of the survey there were 4 million acres of corn not yet planted and 15.8 million acres of soybeans not yet planted. And of course, the the early planting problems were largely in the Dakotas and Minnesota. And that's where they're going to do another survey in July. And they're going to release the results of that if it's materially different on August 12th. So with the numbers that we got Thursday, there's also a little asterisk which gives it a chance of both of those acres and spring wheat acres coming in a little less than showed up in this report. The estimating process is never quite done.
0: I want to talk, take a pause quick and talk before we talk about wheat about the difference between intentions and what we're seeing in this report. And I wonder if you can give a little historical context on how much those have historically differed and understanding this. How do we get it so wrong?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Number one, I, I would like to know what the participation rate is on the March planning intentions for number one. And I suspect that the participation has declined through the years. And the the cynicism in the country versus USDA just seems to grow. There seems just to be a new topic of dissension every year. It's still fresh on our minds, the whole kind of planning estimate fiasco of 2019 and That took such a long time to work out, and in the end, farmers largely were right in their instincts, and USDA was (laughs) not right for many months. So there's this ongoing tension between agriculture and Washington, D.C., and I think that plays a part of the planning intention problem. And to answer your question directly, the past three or four years have not been good. We've seen some big differences in the March planning intentions versus what actually shows up for planted acres at the end of the season. And I think part of that, usually there's a large component of adverse weather that gets in the way and disrupts the intentions. But sometimes I think, for instance, the, the tariffs with China in those years when that was on, I think that caused some big swings in the actual plannings that weren't expected in March or at least weren't shown up on the intentions report in March. So at all, at the, also at the same time, just asking producers what they expect to plant in March really is not, I don't think, a statistically solid effort. It just doesn't make a lot of sense in the real world. And there's a lot of things that change between March and when they actually get to get in the field, as we often see every year in various parts of the Corn Belt. It's If I could get rid of any report, it would probably be the March planning intentions report. And i would glad to add it another grain stocks report somewhere in there.
0: <laughs> we love grain stocks. Yeah. I think that's a good context because I think we're early in the season. We're just so hungry for any information that it's ex- always exciting to see that report, but then it's been such a disappointment. <laughs> yeah. In terms of actually predicting well.
1: And I think one of the problems is there's this concept in psychology of anchoring. So once you throw a number out there, we all kind of fixate and pivot from that initial number and it disrupts and colors our estimates from that point. And if we could ever just close our ears and eyes, that would be a good report to try to ignore and protect yourself from that anchoring.
0: Let's check in on wheat. What was USDA's pronouncement on wheat coming out of this report?
1: Wheat, no big surprise. Wheat acres came in 47.1 million. That's just up slightly from last year's 46.7 million. The winter wheat total came in at 34 million, which was also very close to expectations the main attraction for wheat plantings this time of year tends to be for the spring wheat crop. This is the real first good estimate of that. And USDA came up with 11.1 million acres of spring wheat plantings this year. Now, if that number had been under 11 million acres, it would have been the lowest spring wheat planting in 50 years. But as it stood at 11.1, it was the lowest in uh, four years. But then As I say, we've got a second survey coming up. We still have a shot to break that low end of the record.
0: And give us, before we talk about some of the bigger picture stuff that is also playing a big role right now, was there a stocks update that went along with this as well?
1: Yeah, we have the June 1 grain stocks, corn, soybeans, and wheat. And especially in the case of corn and soybeans, we've seen these phenomenally wide premiums between July and September corn and also July and August soybeans which just seems to be screaming that old crop corn and soybean supplies are very tight and commercials are extremely interested in paying up big amounts of money uh, to secure supplies now versus waiting another month or two. So I fully expected that we would see less than anticipated stocks of corn and soybeans, but that is not the case. They actually proved out to be very close to trade expectations 4.35 billion bushels of corn, that's the second lowest in six years for this time of year. 971 million bushels of soybeans, also the second lowest in six years. So it's still on a tight path, but I don't think it really reflected what the market seems to be saying about how tight corn and soybean supplies actually are.
0: I want to talk about market movement since the report came out yesterday. So the last 24 hours seem particularly relevant, but also to take them out of the context of the last several weeks would also be a bit misleading. So give us kind of an update on where this report sat in what the market is feeling more broadly
1: right now. Yeah, ever since mid-May, we've seen corn and wheat prices peak and turn lower. And initially it was led by a big sell-off in wheat prices and corn has been pulled down with it. And then just recently, and after Thursday's report, we saw another big hit to corn and wheat prices. And here on Friday, as we speak, we're getting a big hit south in soybean prices. So there's a lot of outside market concerns weighing on the grains right now. I can't point to a lot of bearish changes per se for corn, soybeans, or wheat fundamentals. There is rain in the forecast heading into the 4th of July weekend. So yes, that's bearish. That scares speculators out of their long positions, especially ahead of a three-day weekend. But with the planning estimates we have, even if we have good weather and good yields, it still looks like we have plenty of demand and maybe not enough production still in the year ahead for corn or. I
0: wonder if you could dig a little bit more into some of those outside factors, because I think it's it seems nonsensical to talk about the incredible tight stock situation and where soybeans have been and where they're likely to go and then to watch the price declines that we've seen is there a thing that's driving that the most or is it just these winds of so many different
1: things (laughs) there are a lot of different tentacles to it but they all seem to trace back to number one production disruption from the pandemic, which is still ongoing. We still have a logistical problem there. And we lost a lot of oil production and gas production in the pandemic disruption when prices fell so sharply and people quit driving for several months. And number two, the war in Ukraine. Between the two of those, the energy situation has gotten a lot tighter, not only in the US, but in in the entire world. And we've really lost a control of the supply and demand balance of that effort. Now, OPEC just said they would raise another 638,000 barrels a day of production in August after doing the same thing in July. So that's a little bit encouraging. But OPEC's stated production hasn't really kept pace with their, or I should say their actual production hasn't kept pace with these promises that we hear every month. So we're still behind the eight ball when it comes to having enough oil and gas production in the world. And of course the war and, or I should say the response to the war in Ukraine, the Europe's ban of Russian oil and all of us trying to band together and have really stiff sanctions against Russia also makes it difficult on that front because now Russia's oil is more available to China and India but less available to the rest of the world. So it continues to be a very tough situation. Those higher energy prices are feeding inflation. The Federal Reserve is getting a lot of flack for letting inflation get out of control. But I would say this problem is bigger than the Federal Reserve, but they are aggressively raising interest rates. And in the past week now, we've heard more concerns about possible recession ahead because those interest rates are coming up so quickly. So You start saying the R word to any commodity market and it starts to turn soft pretty quickly. And that's what we saw in all three crops this week.
0: I want to ask just a follow up on the fuel story, because I think we've seen, given how just on a pinpoint, it feels like that market is turning right now with every announcement, every new question asked seems to be enough to push markets one way or the other in terms of fuel, especially gasoline. Would you expect those kind of like little shifts up and down are going to start having a bigger and bigger impact on ag market prices? Or do you think that the relationship there is a little bit more
1: long term? We've already seen record prices of diesel. So that's already hurting us on the farm. And of course, where uh, diesel usage really comes into play is at harvest time when they start moving grain off the farm and trucking it to the local elevator or sometimes a little farther, depending on where they're getting the best price. So that's where that fuel bill is really going to hurt. Yeah, we're, we're set up for a very volatile summer in terms of energy prices. There's just no doubt about it. Every little bit of margin um, can swing the market quite a bit on any given day. And just little things like uh, strikes in Saudi Arabia from Yemen or Libyan exports going down. It just doesn't take a lot when the market is this tight. To, to scare traders up and down. And so it's a very tense situation. And in terms of the technicals, there just has been no let up or challenge of support in crude oil or diesel yet at this time. So that's two commodity markets that are still staying strong in spite of the recession talk.
0: I want to bring back in the other question that you talked about briefly, but we have the fuel story right now. We still have the Ukraine story. Those are very dominant in terms of It seems like creating market conditions, but we're also about to go into summer, our peak weather season for the U.S. In your mind, are those (laughs) kind of three pillars? Do you think there's a chance that weather becomes much more dominant over kind of those other outside factors? Or do you think those other outside factors are going to be more important than weather maybe going into the next three months until harvest?
1: Yes. Pertaining to Ukraine, it feels very much like the market has lost its interest in Ukraine at the current time. And has shifted more to the concerns about recession and is the economy getting slow and all that kind of stuff and i say that just to mention that i don't think it's necessarily rational to take our eyes off of ukraine because the situation hasn't gotten any better putin is no less threatening now in fact he's more threatening than he has been and he continues to hurt a lot of production and infrastructure. In Ukraine, So in my mind, that's still a very valid concern, bullish risk to markets, even though the traders are not taking it seriously at this time. Now, asking about weather, I do think weather will be the dominant factor again this season, unless something crazy happens in Ukraine that we don't expect to steal back the spotlight. But weather definitely, I think, is setting up to be as big a determining factor as it ever is. It looked like early in June we had some hot temperatures and Thursday's drought monitor actually came out and showed increasing areas of abnormally dry conditions throughout the central and eastern Corn Belt. But that's been outvoted by this recent forecast of rain now that we have heading into the 4th of July weekend. It looks like there's going to be fairly broad coverage across the Northwestern Plains, and through the Central and Eastern Corn Belt. We'll have to see what the amounts are that verify when we get back Monday night. There could be a lot of fireworks in the market (laughs) still just to start things off when we start trading again Monday night. Moving forward, I want people to know that even though we've had mild temperatures the last week or so of June, and we have this rain forecast now to start the month of July, DTN's meteorologists tell me that their long-range forecast for July, August, and September still leans toward hot and dry conditions. So that is still very much a threat in front of us, even though traders are not giving it any weight at the moment.
0: Talking about total acres, I think in the past when we've looked at the this report and the March intentions report, but I feel like this one is more. There's been some questions about is USDA counting all the acres or are, they, are there, does there seem to be acres being left out of this whole talking point? Doesn't seem like there's as much of that conversation this year. Just more understanding of acres in production, less acres being fallowed. I'm curious if there is any interesting thoughts going on there.
1: Yeah. I found last year's planning experience to be I think really a good benchmark for us moving forward. And I say that because corn and soybean prices were both so high last year and wheat prices too, eventually pulled up, but the prices were so high that there was no experience not to plant whatever acres you had available that you could to corn and soybeans or to whatever crops you normally plant in your area. And yet, even so, the principal crop total just seemed to hit a ceiling. And for corn and soybeans, we seem to hit a ceiling of about 180 million acres. This year's estimate, the principal crop total is down about 900,000 acres from a year ago, which I think is reasonable considering the wet conditions we had in North Dakota and Minnesota. And the corn-soybean total is down about 2.4 million acres from last year's number. So if last year was like the most ideal conditions you could almost have, we almost had no prevented acres to speak of last year. And then we did have a little bit this year. It it just seems we're getting a pretty consistent estimate here that when you take into account the wet conditions we had in North Dakota and Minnesota, that we are gonna be slightly less this year, but still very close to that kind of peak production that we can achieve
0: does this report change your vision or your expectations for the rest of the season going into harvest? Obviously, weather will have a big effect on how that plays out, but are you, have you updated your projections on the rest of the season based on this report at all?
1: Didn't really change corn at all. Soybeans, it did add a little more bullishness to the picture, bringing those acres down to 883 and leaving the door open for possibly even a smaller planting. I did the numbers. If the 88.3 million acre estimate stands for soybeans, and we get a record yield of 52 bushels on soybeans, which seems to me it's going to be difficult in this year to achieve a record yield. But let's say we get that record 52 bushel yield. So we have good weather and things pop out really well. Our soybean crop is still around four and a half billion bushels. And we're already estimating a little more demand than that for that good weather four and a half billion bushel crop. So for me, it's very difficult to see that we're going to be building on any ending supplies in the year ahead. And of course, there's still a big risk that our production could fall much shorter than the four and a half billion bushels. So it's very difficult. It creates a lot of stress when I see the market down shows sharply every day as it has been the past couple weeks, but also knowing that the math just doesn't pan out for the year ahead. So something's got to give. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but it's just very hard to believe the market's throwing in the towel at this point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So we have a WASD coming out in July in a few weeks, and then we'll have an August WASDE before we get into September. Any other big reports or big announcements or big news items that you'll be keeping an eye on to potentially mix things up between now and the beginning of harvest?
1: Boy, I think everything is going to pale in comparison to weather, most likely. The Federal Reserve and the business news channels will still continue to get a lot of attention and they'll continue to hype a lot of worries about the economy and so forth. But I, I still feel that the demand for our grain markets in a very tight world situation where we have expensive fertilizer prices and expensive fuel prices. So it's when you think outside of the U.S., it's much more difficult to keep producing grains in this kind of environment than it is even here in the U.S., where we're still financially fairly solid agriculturally and can finance those higher input costs. But outside the U.S., that's, it's a much tougher case. So, you know, how we're going to meet the challenge of feeding the world internationally with the stresses and strains that agriculture is undergoing, I think is going to be just a fascinating challenge and topic for a long time.
0: Anything else that you think is relevant to talk about here? Any other interesting stories you're working on these days that you want to get on people's radars?
1: I think just overall, I'm really trying to keep my eyes on Putin. And because he's not just attacking the Donbass region that gets all the attention, he's sending missiles everywhere. And he, you know, he took out two grain elevators at a southern port. He hits bridges in the west. He's attacking the capital, Kiev, again. There seems to be no limit to his aggression. And I don't, we don't have a military response to that yet because of the nuclear threat. And I understand that the sanctions really are going to, they're either going to be successful or not based on Europe's unity. And so far, it appears that he's making Europe mad enough that he's really emboldening that that unity. So it's really Europe that's going to have to stop him with US financial help of course, but it's going to kind of live or die on Europe's response. And uh, I still just do not see an endgame to this conflict yet. And uh, that just makes it difficult to have a lot of confidence in putting out a very long-term forecast these days.
0: (laughs) I think we've seen a lot of interesting tidbits of news coming out of Ukraine over the last couple of weeks. Turkey gave up its reservations about Finland and Sweden. Russia left Snake Island, which potentially opens up some possibility of some exports into the Black Sea. We're seeing a little bit of some shifting. And of course, it's always through the filter of whoever you're seeing it from, (laughs) which is challenging. Is anything that you're seeing today or in the last few weeks moving markets, is it making anyone feel anything different about anything that's going
1: on? (laughs) No. And I think the risk here is apathy. That Because nothing major has happened in the past couple months that we feel safe, maybe that our fears are dying down a little bit, but that doesn't mean the problem's been resolved yet. And that's my concern, that we're much more comfortable to be apathetic when we can afford to, but sometimes these problems have a way of jumping out and getting in your face like they did in February. And uh, I'm just very concerned that this whole process isn't over yet.
0: You can read Todd's full analysis and up-to-the-minute reporting on all things ag reports and ag markets at dtnpf.com or in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer with special thanks to Todd Holtman. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month, depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.